0: you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. For the, if you've been with us for the last few months, we've been knowing we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, this masterful message of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the kingdom of God, the good rule of God, and what it means to be citizens of that kingdom, to follow this good king. We're coming into the last part of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We'll be starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7. This is the concluding section as Jesus basically calls us as his listeners. This as he did his listeners that day when he was giving this message. To make a choice. Be clear, which direction are you going to head? We'll be looking at this concluding section this week and next week. But it basically runs through verse 13 through the end of the chapter in verse 29. And it's hard to kind of split it up. But you'll see kind of the way we'll do it this morning. Basically looking at verses 13 through 23. And then when I come back next week and start in verse 21 and go through the end. But I thought the best way for us to start would just be to read through the last part of Jesus' conclusion together. So again, if you have your Bible... Would you stand with me? If you need a Bible, the ushers would love to put one in your hands. But if you have your place there in Matthew chapter 7, and you're able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? And you can follow along on the screens as well. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. We've gotten an experience of that over the last 24 hours or so. But all of that came and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, you've given us these words, not only to impress us or to convict us, but to guide us and to train us. Would you give us ears to hear, hearts to love, hands and feet to do what you've called us to do as we look at your word this morning. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Start with me, if you will, back in verse 13, where again, Jesus says, enter by this narrow gate. Because this narrow gate, this hard or confining path, is the one way that leads to life. The one path that leads to life. And he says it's narrow, it's difficult. Few find it. And what we have to keep in mind is at the heart of this narrow way that Jesus called us to as his disciples, it's not just a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, though again, Jesus, as the king of the kingdom, does command us as his followers, as his apprentices, as we've been saying throughout this series, he does command us to adopt his definition Of good and bad. His definition of the truly blessed life as our own. He does command us to follow him. Yet he also, throughout this sermon, as we've seen, repeatedly warns us against just an external conformity, just outward actions, but hearts that are far from him. What he's arguing for throughout this sermon is that amongst his followers, these apprentices in the way of Jesus, there must be a consistency between our hearts and our actions. There must be an authenticity in our relationship with Jesus. That he knows me and I know him. And again, that, church, listen, that is the root desire of all true disciples of Jesus. I don't just want to follow what he says I want to follow him. I want fellowship with him. As we dive into this whole section, I just thought it would be helpful to remind you of one of these phrases that we've been continuing to reiterate here at Cornerstone. Before Christmas, we had it up on the wall. It kind of came down as we put up pictures at Christmas time. But again, remember this, this definition of disciple that we, we kind of build things around in the way that we want to be disciples here at Cornerstone. We believe that a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus who is first learning from Jesus. Not just learning about him, but learning from him. He's the one that we're following. Trusting Jesus. Not just hearing what he says, but say, okay, I trust you. I will follow the way that you set Becoming like Jesus, true transformation. The way that Jesus puts it in Luke 6.40 is that every disciple when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. It's not just that we will like our teacher, we will be like him. And then lastly, a true disciple is one who helps others do the same. Disciples who make disciples. Keep that definition in your mind as we work through this concluding part of the Sermon on the Mount. So again, verse 13. Enter by this narrow gate. It's hard. It's, the word hard there is actually, it talks about confined. It's like, uh, it's one of those slot canyons that you kind of have to shimmy your way through, if you will. And I don't know about you, but as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount over the last few months, there's been a lot of times where as we look at the commands, the instructions of Jesus, the life that he puts before us, it's like, man, Jesus, you, you didn't give us a lot of wiggle room, did you? I mean, think about it, as he goes through a contrast, starting in chapter 5, between those who like to relax the commandments of God, make them less demanding or more permissive, more doable for hard-hearted, obstinate, prideful people like us, Jesus says, that's not what I'm after. Yeah, you've heard do not murder, but I am saying that the hatred that you harbor in your heart toward those that you disagree with, toward those that you've had conflict with, is just as bad and you need to combat not just murder but hate in your heart. Yeah, you heard don't commit adultery, but I say to you the lust within your heart, the lust in your eyes as you gaze at others is just as big of a problem. Yeah, you've heard love your friends, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who hurt you, because that's what your Father in heaven does. We saw in the beginning of chapter 7, it's not just don't judge so you won't be judged. Acknowledge God as the judge of all of us and deal seriously with the sin in your own life so that you can help your brother and sister, right? This is a hard path that Jesus has set for us. And I think at this point, again, here in verses 13 through 14, Jesus is acknowledging what he knows is the thought in his hearers' minds. I know that this is a narrow gate, a difficult, confined path. But he also makes it really clear. Again, in this first teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew, to follow Jesus is not to be on a choose-your-own-adventure-style journey. Which way do you want to go? No, he says, this is the way to go, right? He is not calling us to fit him into whatever free space we might have in our schedules and our plans. He is calling for a complete retooling of our schedules, a complete retooling of our priorities. He says, you can only serve one master, so make God the one master you serve. You cannot live in two kingdoms at once, so seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first. As we were just singing, your will be done, not mine. This is the path that Jesus calls us to, and he makes it so clear in these verses that you and I must choose. You can't have it both ways. And yet again, what he's saying here is think carefully about the choice you make. Don't just choose the path that seems most appealing to you, most comfortable for you, most popular, that which will earn you praise from others. He says, choose the path that your life will take with the end in mind, with the destination in mind. Where is that path heading? Again, because the wide gate, the broad, easy, popular way, the one where you can bring as much luggage as you want on it, It leads to destruction. And in contrast, this narrow gate, this hard, confined, even lonely, because few find it, path. The one where you really do have to leave most things behind. As he'll say later in chapter 16, the one that requires us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him the one that none of us would naturally choose because of the discomfort that it brings with it. This is the one path that leads to life. So Jesus says to us, do not be short-sighted. Don't just think about today. Think about the road you're on and even more, think about where that road is headed Jesus says again, very clearly here, ultimately, no matter how many different paths, philosophies, religions there may be, there are really only two paths a wide one that leads to destruction, and his narrow one that leads to life. And there is no multiple choice option. There is no third option. There is no dabble in both option. We must choose. This is narrow. And again, I'm starting here because sometimes this is one of the things that we most don't want to linger on. The narrowness of this. The confinedness of this. It's not a popular notion, right? Why is the way of Jesus so narrow? Why dare we even say so exclusive? Sometimes the thought in our minds can be... Or, or, or the thing that perhaps isn't in the thought in the world is that Christians believe this because we want to be right. Because we want to think that we have the exclusive market cornered on truth. That we think that we're better than others. Is that what we believe? Like, th- I honestly, think in your life right now. When you read headlines, when you hear about things that are going on in the world, oh my gosh, those people. Those people out there in the world, Ugh. if that is what is on our heart, we need to repent. As Christians, we do not believe that Jesus' way is the one way that leads to life because we want to be right or because we think that we're better than others. But hear me, we do believe that Jesus is better. Not just the those out there, he is better than all of us. He is the one, he is God who became man to rescue us from our evil, not to endorse how good we were. He is the one who came not to provide another among many paths that lead to life, but to provide the one and only path out of destruction. Not only that, if you think about this, why is this there Now, Why is there only one way? Well, again, as Christians, we don't want to only focus on Jesus. We want to focus on the entirety of God's word. And if you go back to the very beginning, to that moment when humanity first rebelled against God and God gave that first promise that our rebellion and the destruction and death that came with it wouldn't be final, he told us to look for one way, for one person. Look at this, Genesis 3.15. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the tree. And God now explains to them the consequences of their rebellion against him. And he doesn't start with Adam, and he doesn't start with Eve. He first starts by talking to that serpent, that deceiver. And he says this. He says, I will put enmity, fighting, war, conflict between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Singular. Not just all of the people that would come from her, which is all of us, But even there, God is saying there is a singular offspring to watch out for, a singular descendant of Adam and Eve. This singular descendant, he will bruise. The word actually more literally is crush your head, serpent, even as you crush or strike with a fatal blow his heel. But even from that moment, it was look for one. Look for this one hero. Not many. Look for one. Why do we bristle so much against that? Well, think about the way that the serpent deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. Was it not with the lie that they could define good and evil for themselves? Was it not with the lie that their perspective, their sense of how things should be was just as valid as God's? Who is he to tell you that you can't eat from that tree? Why don't you find out for yourself? And think about this. It's not only Adam and Eve who bought that lie, that whatever I decide is best for me, we each have bought that lie so thoroughly, so at the deep DNA root of our hearts as descendants of Adam and Eve, this thought of the assumption of our own autonomy, the assumption of our own right to determine the course of our lives for the self, that even though that path has brought so much death and destruction and corruption to the world in which we live, we still feel entitled to find our own way out of our own mess. Who is Jesus? How dare he say that this is the only way? Shouldn't I have a say in that? Why is it that there is only one path to life? And why is it that Jesus is the one who gets to find it or to define it? It's because there is only one Jesus. Jesus. There is only one person like him. Only one sinless son of God. Only one God in human flesh. One God-man. Only one perfect sacrifice for sin. Only one snake crusher like we see promised here in Genesis 3.15. Only one who having died, rose again never to die again. Eternally resurrected man. Only one. That's Jesus. Jesus. Only one to be eternally resurrected from the dead so far. So far. I love that song that we were singing. Jesus is our living hope because the grave has no claim on him. It has no claim on those of us who trust in him. The way that Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn. What does that mean? There's more on the way. There is more on the way for everyone who trusts in this Jesus, who join him on this narrow path. It leads to life evermore with God. Amen. And not only to life evermore in terms of a resurrection after our death or unless Jesus comes back first. But the way that Paul puts it in Romans 6, he says this. That just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life now. New life. New power to change, to repent, to become like Jesus This is such good news. This is what we sang just a few minutes ago, that song that comes from John 14, 6, where Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no way to the Father except through him. And again, we believe that not just because we want to be right, but because we believe Jesus is right in what he says, amen? Amen. I love the way that Peter reflects back on this in the book of Acts chapter four, when he says, this Jesus, he's speaking to the very people who condemned Jesus to death and plotted with the Romans to kill Jesus. And he says, he's the, the stone that you guys rejected that God's building everything around now. And he says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The path of Jesus, the narrow gate that is Jesus Himself. This is the one path that leads to life. And it is only by faith in Jesus, and not just faith in Jesus, but a faith in Jesus that follows Jesus on this path that He lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the only way to life. So hear me, if you're here this morning and you have not yet committed to trust this Jesus, you have not yet committed to follow this Jesus, today is the day to believe. Today is the day to begin this faith that follows Jesus. He is the only way to life. And watch out for anyone who would tell you otherwise. Watch out for anyone who would tell you that there is more than one way to life than the way that Jesus defines here. Watch out in the same way for anyone who would tell you that the way of Jesus is ultimately about something other than life with God forevermore. You see, it's no coincidence that right after defining, saying there's this one path, Jesus turns in verse 15 and he says this, Beware of false prophets They come in among you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They look like you on the outside, but on the inside they have one goal, to devour you to feed themselves. Watch out for them. This isn't just a difference of opinion. The stakes are high. What is this whole idea about false prophets about? Let's take a few minutes to talk about this. Well, first, before we talk about what a false prophet is, we need to talk about what a prophet is is and throughout scripture we see that the role of a prophet is like a spokesman not just a future teller but someone who communicates on god's behalf a spokesman speaks to people on god's behalf and so then a false prophet is someone who speaks falsely on god's behalf they tell lies claiming that they are truths from god and jesus says beware False prophets are a really big deal. He'll talk about them more in chapter 24. probably be a year or so until we get to that. But we will see more about that in the book of Matthew. Not only that, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know just about every New Testament later talks about the, the, the threat of false prophets. The dangers that they pose to God's people. So why is it that people who teach other than what Jesus said are such a problem? Because there is only one way that leads to life. And already, Jesus says, there are few that find it. And the danger of false prophets is that they make it even harder to find. They make it even harder to find and follow the true path of Jesus. Now, again, there's so much. Not only that, it's not only that they make it harder to find, but think about this. As descendants of Adam and Eve, who believed the lie of the serpent we are still very vulnerable to believe lies, especially lies that appeal to our own desires, our own sense of how we want our life to be. There's so much we could say about false prophets and what it comes down to, but I guess, let me do this. Let me walk through this briefly with you because I guess there are at least four main types of false prophets or teachers that we need to watch out for. So think about this together. The first one I would say to this, Watch out for false teaching that denies that there is only one way to life. That says, contrary to Jesus, there are many paths, whether to heaven or to enlightenment or to, I don't know, some other self-actualization. Watch out for those who would also say there's no roads that lead to life because there is no higher purpose. This life is all that there is, so just do what you want. Watch out for that. Secondarily, I would say... On the one hand, you have t- false teaching that denies that there's one way that leads to life. Say so Also watch out for false teaching that distorts the identity of Jesus, that plays with our sense of who he is or what he's done for us. That would say to us that Jesus, again, yeah, he, I'm cool with him. He's a great teacher. There's been many great moral teachers throughout history, but that's, who he, that's all that he was. He's just a, a, a great human being or perhaps even an exalted human being who God saw his exemplary life and like promoted him to the level of God's son. Or even what some cults do where they tweak the idea of Jesus into being some creation of God. Not eternal son of God, but one who was made by God. Almost like an angelic spirit being or something like that. And so therefore, inherently less than God. Instead of what we see the New Testament teaching, which is clearly this idea that Jesus is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He is co-eternal, begotten, not made, is the way the creed says it. He is the son of the father, but that does not mean there was a time before the son existed. He is the eternal son of the father. How do we wrap our minds around that? We can't fully do it, but we hold to what scripture says and we resist the temptation to relax it to make it more understandable for us. Amen? He is co-equal. He is co-eternal. He is of the same substance and essence with the father and the spirit. We truly do serve and worship One God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the blessed Trinity. Amen? Because if you tweak that, if you make Jesus anything less than that, he is now immediately an insufficient Savior, not enough to save us from the predicament that we're in. And our faith in him is pointless. So watch out for anyone, even if everything else they say sounds good, the music they write is really good, that tweaks who Jesus is. Third, False prophecy also loves to make the way of Jesus about something other than God's kingdom. About something other than the good rule of God to redeem all creation. Typically, false prophets along this way, they take the way of Jesus and they repurpose it towards some lesser goal. This is the way to wealth and health and prosperity. This is the way to gain supernatural power like some form of magic over spirits or people perhaps even more insidious to us, the way of Jesus is the way to political power. It's the way to get things back right in this country. Make it about building this kingdom here. This is not about building our version of some kingdom here. We are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen. The way of Jesus is not about somehow exerting our will over others. It is Seeking the will of our Father in heaven. Watch out for false prophets that make the mission of the church about anything other than making disciples who make disciples of this Jesus. Lastly, false prophecy often separates faith in Jesus from following Jesus. Do You see the difference there? Separates this idea of believing in Jesus from following what he said. And these ones can be really tricky because false prophets like this often will teach very good, orthodox, biblical things about who Jesus is, but there's a gap somewhere when it comes to conduct, how we live in response. On the one hand, you can have false prophets in this way who reduce reduce the gospel to some sort of what we often call easy believism. Just trust in Jesus. Just pray this prayer this one time and that's all you need to do. No other changes nor reorientation is needed in your life. Even if you... Don't do anything else. If you prayed that prayer one time, you're good. How can you read the Sermon on the Mount and come to that conclusion? These kind of false prophets often avoid touchy topics like repentance, turning from sin toward righteousness, obedience, discipleship, actually being a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes the most dangerous false prophets along this way are those in which basically you can just basically sum it up and say there is a huge gap between what they say and how they live. Have we not seen that even in our own generation and throughout church history? Those who everything that they say as far as we can tell is good and godly and yet their life doesn't match up to the message. They are those hypocrites that Jesus has been warning us about and warning us not to be throughout this sermon Sometimes that hypocrisy, sadly, is not exposed until much later. Sometimes they're able to keep up the facade even until they die, and then afterward, it all comes out. The abuse of power, the abuse of women, the abuse of money. Oh, my gosh, they were wearing that sheep clothing so well, we couldn't tell the difference. And sometimes these type of false prophets, they are the most destructive to God's people and especially the most destructive to our witness in this world. They erode all of our credibility. Man, they fed on us and we didn't even see it. So Jesus, again, remember, think about this. Stop and think about this for a second. Jesus, remember who he's talking to here. He says, beware of false prophets who come into you, to y'all. Who's the y'all that Jesus is talking about here? Okay, flip all the way back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up in the mountain and who comes to him? His disciples and he teaches them. So understand, here's why this is important. Jesus is not warning us here about false prophets out in the world, teachers in other religions and things. Not, I mean, Yeah, watch out for them too. And you're not going to find life down those paths either. But specifically, what Jesus is saying here is watch out for those who would come in among you, among the, the community of citizens of the kingdom of God, who will dress like you, sound like you, look like you, pray with you, worship with you, sing with you. But they have a different motive. They are just here to feed themselves at your expense. Also, notice that we often talk when we think about prophets, teachers, we think about leaders. These ones come in just looking like sheep. Just part of us. They may not have a platform. And yet their teaching can be no less sinister. Watch out. Jesus commands us to beware. Beware. All of us. Beware of what? Watch out for what? On the lookout for what? Because again, if false prophets look like us, sound like us, sing with us, pray with us, how can we tell the difference? How can we tell them apart? Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. And again at the end, verse 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. What fruit? What's the fruit he's saying? Because again, outwardly they put on the sheep clothing, inwardly there's something different. So don't just look at the outward and yet we're supposed to look for fruit. Some result, some product of their lives. What is it that Jesus tells us to watch for? Not just what they put on, but the output, if you will. Does that make sense? Think about it like this. The fruit that Jesus is talking about here is not just someone's actions not just what they do or what they say, and also not just the results of their actions, the effect that it has, the impact, the, the number of people that they gather to themselves, or even the effect that it has on us personally, the way that our emotions were stirred by what they said or the songs that they played. I'm not saying that emotion is bad, right? That is one of the things that God has given us as a gift from him. God is emotional, and so we are emotional and we want to have our emotions, our affections stirred by truth from God's word. We want it stirred by the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. But again, stop and think about this for a second, especially in our day and DNA. We've gotten pretty good at manipulating emotions, haven't we? I don't know about you. I just remember a few years ago, my family and I, we were able to have Disney passes one year. And there's something about those big, huge performances that they do at Disneyland. You watch The World of Color or Phantasmic or something like that, and I find myself getting those same chills that sometimes I get in church, right? We get really good through the lights and the flash and the production and the swelling of music to manipulate those same kind of emotional responses, which means we need to look for something more than just how something makes us feel, how we respond to it. Again, it's not their actions or our response to their actions or the effect of them. The fruit that Jesus is talking about here that we see throughout the Bible is their character. Their character. Particularly, think of this statement within the light of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how Jesus started with the Beatitudes. The blessed life of the kingdom of God for those who are poor in spirit, pure in heart, merciful peacemakers and so forth, persecuted for righteousness. Do you see that in them? Those who you would listen to be affected and influenced by, do you see the blessed life of the Beatitudes on display in their life? When we think about this idea of fruit, it also makes us think of something that Paul writes about later in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We were in our sermon prep meeting, and Ted, one of the guys on the team, he said, isn't it interesting how smart is not on the list? Bold isn't necessarily on the list. Someone who kicks butts and takes names, not on the list. Those who you would be influenced by and follow. Are their lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Do they look like Jesus? And again, we're not talking about perfection. But is there a demonstrable, demonstrable evidence of progress? We don't have to turn there, but in, in 1 Timothy 4, this is one of the things that Paul calls Timothy to do. A young man in ministry, this has always been. I, I came on staff here at Cornerstone a little over 18 years ago at the ripe old age of 22. So being a young man in ministry with responsibility, I, I gravitated toward the book of 1 Timothy. And I love the way that Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 4, where on the one hand, he says, Timothy, be bold, be confident as a young man. Command and teach what God's word says. But don't just command and teach it. He says, set an example of one who believes. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your Progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's got to be a correspondence between what you say and how you live. Again, that definition of disciple we talked about before. Are your leaders, those you would listen to, are they marked by a following of Jesus, trusting Jesus? Are they becoming like Jesus, not in perfection, but is that a demonstrable pattern in their life? I love the way that, that Paul talks about it in the book, Of Hebrews chapter 13. Actually, it's not Paul. I said that. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. It could have been Paul. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, look at this one carefully. This is really important. Because if on the one hand, Jesus says, y'all, all of us are to beware of false prophets, we need to look carefully. And what he says, the writer of Hebrews says here in chapter 13, verse 7, he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life. Another way of talking about that fruit that Jesus said. What's the outcome of their way of life? Have you seen them or listened to them or observed them long enough to actually see that outcome? And imitate their faith. But again, I love the order there. Consider the outcome first before you imitate. Because if you consider the outcome and it looks nothing like Jesus, do not imitate their faith. They are on the wrong path. Do not imitate them. And again, whose job is it to beware? Y'all's. It is y'all's job to beware because the false prophets will come in among y'all. Now again, later on in the New Testament, um, Acts 20, Paul makes it clear that elders, overseers within a local church have a particular responsibility to be on guard. The way that Paul puts it in Titus 1 is that the role of us as your elders is to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. That is a responsibility that I and the rest of your elders are fully aware of, take seriously, and want to carry out faithfully. But Jesus's point here is that it's not only the elders' job to be on guard, it is all y'all's, all of our job. Be on the lookout, be on the watch. Look out. Look out for even your leaders. Again, Hebrews 13 7. When you think of me or Todd or John or Steve or Dan or any of the the leaders here at Cornerstone, look out for us. Look at the outcome of our way of life. Consider how we live. Are we followable? Again, not perfect, but is there demonstrable pattern of progress in following Jesus? For some of you, that might mean you need to press in to get to know us a little bit more because you don't know enough of our lives. Some of you do know. You've seen the track record of our lives. And if you've seen it and gone, yes, not perfectly, but I see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. I see the Beatitudes on display. I see men who are trying to follow hard after Jesus then what I would say to you is what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If on the other hand, you see something out of line, a way in which we are out of step, don't just take your ball and go home. Don't just leave. Watch out for us. Come to us, any one of us. Help us see where we are wrong. We do not want to lead you in the wrong direction. Do that whole log and thing that we talked about at the beginning of chapter 7. Help us see where we're out of line. This matters because there is only one way that leads to life. And my deepest desire as one of your elders, as one of your shepherds, is to follow hard after Jesus myself and to help you do the same Because he is the way, the truth, the life. Amen? Let's look at one more thing before we close. Again, Jesus is calling us not just prophets, teachers, leaders, but for all of us to pay attention to the fruit that comes out of all of our lives. And especially those who would communicate or claim to communicate on his behalf. But the fruit that we're looking for whether of prophets, teachers, leaders, or in our own lives. Again, it's not just external actions that we can fabricate. I would say just as earlier I talked about we need a faith that follows Jesus. Here, if you're taking notes, write this down. We need fruit of fellowship with Jesus. The fruit is the fruit of fellowship. An actual, authentic relationship with Jesus. Why do I say that? Look again at verse 21. We'll dive into this passage in more detail this the, next week, but I want to dive into it for a moment with you. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He says, many will come to me, they will claim, they will state these great deeds that they've done in my name. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform many great works in your name? And the interesting thing is, Jesus never says that those works were fake. He never says it was all smoke and mirrors. What does he say? I never knew you. Yeah, you might have done those things, but there was never a relationship between us. We never knew each other. I never knew you. These are, without a doubt, some of the scariest words in the New Testament. To live your whole life believing that you are on the right track, that you have entered through the narrow gate, to even attempt to do great things in Jesus' name, prophesy, cast out demons, healing, mighty works, and then to stand before Jesus and he goes, I'm sorry, who are you? We didn't know each other. And again, the idea is not that he doesn't know about, because in elsewhere we see Jesus knows every, God knows every, the amount of every hair on our head, right? He knows about, but this idea of knowing throughout the Bible is this, it's true relational knowing, fellowship, partnership. We didn't know each other in that way. I might have known a lot about you. You might have known a lot about me, but we did not know. Each other. I guess in many ways you could say Judas is the most classic example of this. When we finish up the Sermon on the Mount, we'll move over to chapters 8, 9, and 10, where we will see Jesus do many mighty works, casting out demons and so forth. And then in chapter 10, he sends out the 12 apostles to do those same works. Guess who one of those guys was? Judas. He was sent out by Jesus. Two cast out demons, two do great mighty works, and he did them and came back. And it seems, again, as we read through the Gospels, none of the other apostles ever even doubted the authenticity of Judas. Even when Jesus looks at him at the Last Supper and says, you're the one that's going to go betray me. Go do what you need to do quickly. Somehow that misses, goes right over the guy's heads, and they go, oh, he must need to go get some more food for dinner. We can miss it. We can miss it in our own lives. Do not be deceived. Jesus, it says in John, knew from the beginning the one who would betray him. Yeah, you were with me, but we never knew each other. Never authentic fellowship. Not only could we do great things for Jesus and miss the point, but again, look at the first part What he says, not everyone who just says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus, on the one hand, is warning against those who want to do big things for Jesus but miss him in the process. And on the other hand, he is guarding against those who will say things about Jesus with no further follow-through in their own lives. Lord, Lord, and stop there. Jesus is my Lord, and that's it. In the the same context of these same comments in the book of Luke, chapter 6, Jesus will say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and... Not do the things that I tell you. Faith that follows Jesus is absolutely essential. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen and amen. And yet it is a faith that follows Jesus on the path that he set. Do not settle. Do not be tricked into settling for anything less than that. In contrast to both lip service people and the big things for Jesus but no relationship people, Jesus again says, the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We'll dive into that more next time. But again, think about this. He says this other statement. He says, on that day, on that day, I want to close with this. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. On that day, there is a day coming when Jesus says it will be time, in the verse before, to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've talked throughout this sermon that the kingdom of heaven is both a now and a not yet reality. We can live as citizens of God's kingdom now. That's what the whole sermon on the Mount is about. We can, we can experience it in part, but a day is coming when what we experience now in part, it will be time for God's people to enter it fully And what will matter most on that day is not what you know about Jesus, nor what you've done for Jesus, but simply this. Does he know you? Does he know you? Are you known by him? Are you confident that on that day when you stand before Jesus face to face, when your eyes meet, that there will be that instant look of recognition? You know what that's like, right? To be in a big room and scan it and then see someone you know and the, oh yeah. Are you confident that that is what you will experience from Jesus? I know you. We know each other. Or on that day, Will you find out that your version of Christianity was just a collection of good moral teachings? That your version of Christianity was really just this part and parcel of this whole God and country, faith and family thing? Some version of American culture that was actually where your true allegiance lay. Will you find on that day... That your version of following Jesus was just this constant pursuit of bigger and better spiritual and emotional experiences rather than a faithful obedience to Jesus. The things that he calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount are rarely flashy or impressive. But he says, this is the life that gets my father's attention. This is the life of one who knows me. Well, you find that you basically follow Jesus by trying to pick and choose the aspects of his teaching that fit with the way you already viewed life and rejected the other parts. Do you hope that when you stand before Jesus one day there will be the opportunity to remind him of what you've done? Jesus, I prepared this resume where I can show you all of my accomplishments, all of the things that I did. I want to make sure that you didn't miss your attention because the, re- the reality is my attention really wasn't on you when I did these things anyway. So I just want to make sure that you're at least aware of it before you make your decision. Or will you have confidence that there will be that look of recognition in his eye? This is why we sang that song at the beginning. I love that right before I got up here. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus, his death and resurrection. That's what I'm counting on, he's what I'm after. We're about to sing a song now. Some of them are up. I'm not sure. There they are, right there. (laughs) In which we will say this, that we approach the throne of glory with nothing in our hands to bring, not claiming what we've done, but simply this. There is a promise of acceptance by a good and gracious king for those who come to Jesus and follow him on that path. Before we sing that, man, if you need prayer, if right now you're not sure that there will be that look of recognition in your Savior's eye, we would love to talk with you, pray with you. have got folks up here at the prayer room that would love to pray with you. But otherwise, would you stand and let us sing this song, believing fully at the end of the day what matters most is to be known by Jesus, to know him and to make him known, amen?